welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are in Jeremiah chapter 27. Chapter 27 and 28 go together. They work together as a unit, so we're going to try to get them both in tonight. Fortunately, for the most part, they are narrative, so we should be able to get through both chapters. And along the way, I will try to fill in some of the detail that helps the narrative make more sense. At both the beginning of chapter 27 and the beginning of chapter 28, Jeremiah gives us time stamps. So we have a pretty good feeling for when this is all taking place. The time indication in chapter 27 doesn't matter quite as much as the one in chapter 28. And by the end of the night, you'll know why that is. You may recall that when we looked at chapter 26 last week, I identified that as happening sometime around 609 to 608 B.C. Tonight we're talking about 597 to 586 B.C. because a couple of kings have come and gone. Last week we were talking about the time of Jehoiakim, but this week we're talking about Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the last of the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, He was truly, genuinely a vassal king of Babylon, of Nebuchadnezzar. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, says chapter 27, verse 1, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, and the essential element of the message that he's about to deliver is basically you cannot resist an absolutely sovereign God. Whatever he determines to do, that is what he is going to do. I have used the phrase many times through the years that people like to beat their head against the brick wall of God's sovereignty. What I mean by that is people resist God's sovereignty. They don't like the idea of God's sovereignty, and yet they are subject to God's sovereignty. They just disagree with it the whole time that they are banging their heads against the fact that God is in control of human history. So God declares at the beginning of this message that he is in control of human history because, after all, he made everything. And on that basis, he can do whatever he wants with what is his. And he tells the king, along with the kings of Edom and Moab and the kings of the sons of Ammon, and as well as that, the king of Tyre and the king of Sidon, he tells all of them collectively, look, Nebuchadnezzar is the person that God has chosen to give rulership over this entire area. Now, you can resist that. And then you're going to be put out of your land. Nebuchadnezzar is going to overwhelm you. 
God takes credit for that because Nebuchadnezzar is, after all, God's servant, according to this text. He's only doing those things that God determines that he's going to do. And so God tells them, if you will just admit that Nebuchadnezzar has the rule over you and react accordingly, you'll get to stay in your land. God says, I'll let you stay in your land. But if you resist the fact that this is the movement that God has brought onto the face of human history at this very moment, that Nebuchadnezzar is the one who is going to be the king over all of your other kingdoms at this moment. If you resist that, you're going to be crushed. You're going to be destroyed. You're not going to be able to stay in your land. This is a good example of what I call beating your head against the brick wall of God's sovereignty because God's going to do what he's going to do And God tells Jeremiah, go tell the kings and go tell the people of those areas to just admit that they are subject to the king that God has set up. And so you cannot resist the absolute sovereign decree of an absolutely all-powerful God who is going to do what he wants to do regardless of your opinion about it. So in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord to me, Make for yourself bonds and yokes and put them on your neck. So Jeremiah is told that he is supposed to create a yoke like something you would put oxen in, and then put it on his neck. It's basically a visual aid whereby he is declaring to Judah, you are going to go into captivity, you're going to go into slavery, you're going to have the yoke of bondage on your neck. So make for yourself bonds, because you're going to be bond servants, and yokes, and put them on your neck. And send word to the king of Edom, to the king of Moab, to the king of the sons of Ammon, to the king of Tyre, and to the king of Sidon, by the messengers who come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, the king of Judah. There's a meeting of all these various kings in this area. They've all come to Jerusalem to meet with Zedekiah, the puppet king. Now, we don't know why they all happen to be in Jerusalem at this moment, God knows that they are all in Jerusalem, and so he sends his prophet in to make a prophecy to all of them, a message that they are supposed to carry back to their kings or to the people that they serve. The Bible knowledge commentary speculates that the reason they were all together was because we know, again, about when this is happening They say it was right around May to August of 593 B.C. The reason that would be important is because the Babylonian Chronicle recorded that just about a year prior to that period, there was a rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar happening in Babylon. So in the midst of all that kind of upheaval, these kings may have been gathering together because Nebuchadnezzar had been rising to power, had been encroaching on all their areas, had been asserting his dominance. Maybe they were getting together at that moment 
to figure out how they collectively could join forces and throw off the power of Babylon. If that's the case, then it's really exceptional timing on God's part that he would send Jeremiah in to give them the message, look, you think you're going to throw him off, but you're not going to because he is the one that has been chosen by God to rule over this area rather than being resistant and rebellious against it, you really ought to just bow the knee to the fact that this is what God has chosen to do. Here's the way the Bible puts it in verse 4. Command them to go to their masters, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. So God says, look, I made everything. I can do whatever I want with what's mine, which would be everything, and I get to give my planet the land to whoever I choose to give it to, and I do that according to my own good pleasure. I do that according to whatever pleases me. And even if you don't agree with that, it doesn't matter. I'm God. I made everything. I'm the sovereign Lord over everything, and I will give the rulership to whoever I decide to give the rulership. And there's really nothing you can do about it. I have made the earth. I have made the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth. I made them by my great power and by my outstretched hand, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the wild animals of the field, to serve him. So he has complete dominance in that area of the Middle East. So all of you kings who are gathered together, if your purpose for getting together is to try to throw off the yoke of Rome, here's a guy, a prophet of God, standing in front of you wearing a yoke, telling you, that you are going to be under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. And the reason is because that's what pleases God. And why did it please God? Because he predicted it in advance. This is what he is going to do in order to demonstrate to his people, Israel in particular, that he is a God who is serious about his law. And when they break his law, when they don't keep his Sabbaths, when they serve other gods, he is going to drive them out of their land. And he's going to use Nebuchadnezzar, who we can call his servant in that context, and say that it is by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of the Chaldeans that he is going to drive Israel out of their land in order to demonstrate that he is zealous for his law. And that's according to his good pleasure. Now I've given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him, and all the nations shall serve him, and his son, and his grandson, until the time 
of his own land comes, that particular moment where the land that he rules over is going to be taken away from him. And then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. Okay, now when Jeremiah said that, that was a prophecy. He was saying that before it had actually occurred, but look at how specific it is. All the nations are going to serve him and his son and his grandson until the time that I take it all away from him and then other kings are going to make him their servants. Well, that happened exactly like it is laid out here in the prophecy of Jeremiah. Here's a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar history for you. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon from 605 B.C. until 562 B.C. That's a good long reign. We know two of his children. He had a son named Amal Murdoch. He's also known as Evil Murdoch or Evil Murdoch. He's mentioned in 2 Kings 25, 27. And he also had a daughter named Netochris. So Amel Murdoch succeeded Nebuchadnezzar as king. Amel Murdoch was killed in a coup. His brother-in-law, Nereglizar, who's probably the same as Nergal, Sherezer, who's mentioned in Jeremiah 39. We'll get to that. He succeeded him, but when Nereglizar died... His son, Labashi Murdoch, became king, although he was still a child, but then he was assassinated after only nine months. All of that happened in very, very quick succession. But finally, Nabonidus, who was the son of a priestess, became king in 556 BC and married the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, Natokris. So he married Natokris, which made him the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar. Their oldest son was Belshazzar, who was then made a regent or a co-ruler with Nabonidus. And in about 550 BC, Nabonidus moved to Arabia, leaving Babylon in the hands of Belshazzar. He didn't return for 10 years. And then when he did, he was captured by the Persians because it was this Belshazzar who we read about in Daniel who decided to take the sacred objects from the temple and use them for his own Bacchanalia feast. And it was during that feast that the hand writing on the wall wrote, uh, you've been weighed in the balances and you've been tried and found wanting. It was during the time of Belshazzar that, sure enough, the Persians and the Medes conquered Babylon. And so what you see is exactly what Jeremiah laid out. It was a fulfilled prophecy that all nations would serve Nebuchadnezzar and his son, that's the evil Merodach, and his grandson, that's Belshazzar, until the time of his land comes, which is during the time of Belshazzar, when the Medo-Persians conquered them, and then sure enough, all the kings of all the many nations would make them their servants. That all actually happened. So Jeremiah predicted it in advance, and then actual secular Middle Eastern history demonstrates yet again the veracity of the Bible and its ability to tell the future in advance. Why? Why? because you can't resist an absolutely sovereign God. 
when he decrees that something's going to happen, it's going to happen. The same way that he decreed that Babylon was going to fall after Nebuchadnezzar and then his son and his grandson ruled, and then they were going to become servants to the other nations. That same way, he also declared that Nebuchadnezzar was going to be the king of all that region, and there was nothing the kings of Judah or the kings of Edom or Moab or Ammon or the kings of Tyre or Sidon, that whole Middle Eastern region could not resist the fact that God decided Nebuchadnezzar was going to rule. You got all that? It's kind of astounding. I know I ran through it really, really quickly. But the more you ponder it, the more amazing it is that God has that kind of control over human history, which is why God can say things like, look, I made it all. I'm in control of it all. I'll decide what happens. Which, by the way, is very comforting to this very moment. Because right now, we do not have a tremendous amount of faith or confidence in our leadership that's going on in the country right now. But it's good to know that God is still on his throne. He's still in charge. And what is happening in the world right now is exactly what God decided. And the reason the leaders that exist right now exist is because they are advancing the program that is eventually going to drive to the ultimate kingdom of Christ. And before that, there has to be this time of great confusion and punishment. That all has to happen. So no wonder there's a whole lot of confusion on the planet right now. Okay, that was just a little theological extra I thought I'd throw in for free. It should give you some confidence. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes, and then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. And it will be that the nation or the kingdom which will not serve him, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, remember this prophecy is coming from a guy wearing a yoke, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have destroyed it by his hand. Notice that language. God said, I will destroy that land. I will destroy that land by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, who he says is my servant. Nebuchadnezzar is going to do exactly what I want him to do because I'm sovereign. And even though he doesn't know me and even though he doesn't realize that he's fulfilling prophecy for me, he's still going to do it. I will destroy it by his hand. But as for you, do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers who speak to you saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. As Jeremiah is out there prophesying exactly what God said, there were other prophets, false prophets, who were saying, peace, peace, it's all going to be okay, don't worry about it. You should go ahead and rebel against the king of Babylon. And so Jeremiah says, don't do that. Don't listen to them. Because if you do what they say, I'll destroy you. For they prophesy a lie to you in order to remove you far from your land. And I will drive you out and you will perish. 
By the way, did God just say right there, you know, there's a bunch of prophets running around saying a bunch of stuff, and by the way, they're lying. That's what God just said. Uh, It seems to still be going on to this very day. If you don't know the word of God, if you're not paying attention to what God has already said, it's going to be real easy to be deceived by those prophets who tell you the kind of stuff you want to hear. Those that tickle your ears, those that make you feel good about yourself, those that tell you that it's all great, it's all peace, you're going to be fine with God. Just keep living the way you are. Just keep being as depraved as you are. Don't don't worry, God loves everybody. He's universal in his benevolence. You're going to be fine. Well, those would be prophets that are lying. But there have always been lying prophets. There have always been people who claim to speak for God and then end up saying the exact opposite of the truth. This is a good example. They are going to say to you that you should not serve the king of Babylon, but they prophesy a lie to you in order to remove you far from your land, and I will drive you out and you will perish. But the nation which will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let remain on its land, declares the Lord. And they will till it, and they will dwell in it. So it's really not up to human beings. God said, I'll allow you to stay in your land if you will just admit that Nebuchadnezzar is king over you, because that is what I have declared, and I'm in charge. And if you resist him, I will drive you out of your land, and you will perish, because God is in absolute charge. Verse 12, and I spoke words like all these to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, saying, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword and the famine and the pestilence as the Lord has spoken to that nation which will not serve the king of Babylon? So do not listen to the words of your prophets who speak to you, saying, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. For I have not sent them, declares the Lord, but they prophesy falsely in my name, in order that I may drive you out, that you may perish, you and your prophets who prophesy to you. And then I spoke to the priests, And to all this people saying, thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesy to you, saying, behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought again from Babylon, for they are prophesying a lie to you. One of the things that Nebuchadnezzar did in the first deportation of people out of Jerusalem is that he destroyed the temple, burned it down with fire, took all of the the gold, the silver, the bronze, all of the wonderful things that had been built and dedicated to God inside the temple. He transported them all into Babylon and then set them up in the temples of his gods. So one of the things that Jerusalem was hoping for was not only their individual freedom from the yoke of Babylon, 
But they wanted to see all of those vessels that belonged to the house of God returned back to Jerusalem. It was part of their national wealth, and it had all been taken away from them. And in fact, we'll look at that in just a moment. Don't listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought again from Babylon, because they're prophesying a lie to you. They're going to stay there for 70 years. But God is also going to say, and then when I decide when it's time, I'm going to bring all those vessels back, and they're going to be in my house again. But it's not a short time. It's a 70-year span. Verse 17, do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a ruin but if they are prophets, and if the word of the Lord is with them, let them now entreat the Lord of hosts that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and in Jerusalem may not go to Babylon. There were still some things, secondary things that were left behind. And so Jeremiah says, if they really do have any interaction with the God of Israel, the sovereign one, then let them go and entreat God so that those few things that are still left don't also get taken away into Babylon. And he's setting them up now. Get them to entreat God that that won't happen because now he's going to prophesy that that very thing is going to happen. So get them to go ask God to not do it, but I'm telling you, he's going to do it. And that's going to expose them as false prophets. For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the stands, and concerning the rest of the vessels that are left in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take when he carried into exile Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem, they shall be carried away to Babylon." And they shall be there until the day that I visit them, declares the Lord. And then I will bring them back and I will restore them to this place. So, yeah, they're coming back. But for your prophets who are saying they're going to be right back, that's not going to happen. And in fact, Jeremiah says to the false prophets, if you actually have any interaction with God at all, go and entreat God that nothing else gets taken from Jerusalem. Because I'm telling you, the rest of what we've got is also headed for Babylon. So let's see if you have any sway with God at all. Let's find out if he listens to you at all. You go and treat him that he not do what I'm saying he's about to do. Now this is also a prophecy at the end of chapter 27, verse 22. They shall be all the vessels, all the gold, all of the good stuff that still exists in the temple, in the house of the king, and in Jerusalem. All of that is going to be carried to Babylon and then be there until the day that God visits them 
And then he's going to bring them back and restore them again to this place. Turn to the book of Daniel, the very beginning of the book of Daniel. As you know, Daniel was part of that first deportation into Babylon. And so the book of Daniel starts with that very fact. And part of the way Daniel describes that deportation is not only that the people were taken, but that the vessels from the house of the Lord were taken. Daniel chapter 1, the first couple of verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel agrees with Jeremiah. It's not that Nebuchadnezzar was mighty and strong, and so that's the reason that Jehoiakim was taken or that the temple was destroyed or the walls of Jerusalem fell. It was because God himself gave the king of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar when he came and besieged Jerusalem. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And that's the very place from which Belshazzar eventually brings those vessels back out in order to use them at his feast the very night that Medo-Persia overtook Babylon. But then, after the Medo-Persians take over Babylon, King Cyrus comes to the determination, exactly like Isaiah said he would, 150 years in advance, King Cyrus comes to the conclusion that the Jews can go back and rebuild their temple and rebuild their walls. And then that decree is reconfirmed by Artaxerxes after him. And that takes us to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And one of the interesting things that happened during the time of Ezra, turn to the book of Ezra for just a moment, right at the beginning of the book of Ezra. You'll find the book of Ezra right after First and Second Chronicles. After the kings and the chronicles, you bump right into Ezra. Ezra chapter 1, if we start reading at verse 7, well, verse 5, then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those about them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that, was also given a free will offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem, and put them in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. 
And now this was their number, and then they're all listed. 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400, and Sheshbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. What does that demonstrate? that everything Jeremiah predicted actually came true, that the articles that were in the house of the Lord were carried off into Babylon, and they would remain there until God would go and get them, and then he would bring them back, and he would restore them to his own house in Jerusalem. Ezra says that happened. So all I'm trying to demonstrate is God keeps saying, look, I'm in charge here. Look, I'm the one who determines these things, and it's going to go the way I say it's going to go. So just bow the knee to my sovereign decree and recognize that I am in charge of human history, and don't rebel against it, because in so doing, you're rebelling against me. And God said to these ancient kings, if you rebel against me, I'm going to drive you out of your land, and I'm going to destroy you because I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Are you getting the big message so far tonight? The big message is God is going to do what God is going to do, and you don't get to fight against it. It is a futile activity to bang your head repeatedly against the brick wall of God's sovereignty. And that takes us to chapter 28. And this is the story of one of those false prophets who is going to directly contradict what Jeremiah is saying. And this is really instructive, the way that Jeremiah deals with him. The specific time that Jeremiah is going to mention here is really going to help us understand this entire chapter because even though the specific time of the prophecy wasn't given in chapter 27 the month and the year that his opponent spoke is recorded in chapter 28 so we know that the date was around august or september of 593 bc and jeremiah was really careful to tell us that hold on to that because one of the things jeremiah is going to predict against that false prophet is before this year is out you're going to be dead. And it turns out before the year is out, that prophet was dead. So here's the story. Now it came about in that same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month, that Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet, who was from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people. And here's what he said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. So here's Jeremiah walking around with a yoke on his neck, proclaiming that all the local principalities are going to fall under the yoke of Babylon. And here comes this Ananiah guy saying, God says, I've broken your yoke. Okay, that'd be the direct opposite of what Jeremiah is saying. 
Then he continues, within two years, I am going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried away to Babylon. I am also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Okay, so that's his prophecy. His prophecy is exactly and directly different and opposite than what Jeremiah has been saying. And yet he's declaring that the king's coming back. We're going to be a kingdom again. All the vessels are coming back. We're going to be rich again. The people are coming back. And that's all going to happen within two years. So don't worry about it. Resist the king of Babylon. It's all going to go good. Verse 5. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests and in the presence of all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord confirm your words, which you have prophesied, to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all the exiles from Babylon to this place. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great prophecy you just laid out. I hope it's true. Yeah, I hope you're right. Yeah, amen. Let that happen. However, prophet Jeremiah also said, verse 7, yet hear now this word, which I am about to speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people, the prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and of calamity and of pestilence. The prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then that prophet will be known as the one whom the Lord has truly sent. So he's setting up a contrast between himself and Hananiah and saying, look, I'm in league with all the prophets before me. They all prophesied trouble, destruction, the wrath of God, the same way I am. This prophet, just like all the false prophets before him, is prophesying peace to you. But he also points out the prophet will be known as the one whom the Lord has truly sent if the word of the prophet comes to pass. Well, that reaches all the way back to the test of a prophet. The test of the prophet is found in Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22. Will you look that up for us, Tom? Deuteronomy 18, you're probably going to be familiar with this. God said that the test of a prophet is that what he says actually occurs. It actually happens. But if it doesn't happen, don't fear him. He's not a prophet. I didn't send him. Jeremiah is agreeing with that standard. All right, Tom, Deuteronomy 18, read 20 to 22, if you would. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, 
you may not be afraid of him. If he's truly speaking for God, then what he says is going to happen. If it doesn't happen, he was lying. He was not speaking for God. Jeremiah sets up that same standard. This guy is saying one thing. I'm saying the opposite. Let's see which of those two come true. The prophet who prophesies of peace. When the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then that prophet will be known as the one whom the Lord has truly sent. Well, Hananiah didn't like that. So he reacts to Jeremiah. He gets exactly what Jeremiah is saying. Jeremiah is calling him a false prophet and saying, let's put it to the test. So Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. Apparently demonstrating the yoke of Babylon is going to be broken from off us. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, Thus says the Lord, even so will I break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of the nations. And then Jeremiah's reaction, I find fascinating. And then Jeremiah went his way. Why? Why did he just walk away instead of arguing with him? Because I think Jeremiah was so convinced that he knew he was speaking directly from God that he was willing to let God handle the rest of it. Just say what God has to say, and if people disagree, God will handle it. Over the course of time, he's going to demonstrate it. He's going to sort it out. You don't need to fight about it. So I think we can learn a great deal from Jeremiah's response and reaction. Jeremiah just went his way, left it up to God. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, go and speak to Hananiah, saying, thus says the Lord, you have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made instead of them yokes of iron. So yes, maybe you can manhandle something made by men. The yoke that Jeremiah was wearing, yeah, you could break that, fine. But my word is so sure, the yoke of Babylon is going to be on these people for 70 years, just like I said, that it is an unbreakable yoke. It's like a yoke made of iron. The yoke that I'm going to put on you is going to be so heavy, so unbreakable, that your little demonstration of breaking a yoke of wood means nothing. Instead of the yokes of wood that you broke, I'm going to make yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. And I also have given him the beasts of the field, and then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, 
Behold, I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you are going to die because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. You have counseled rebellion against the Lord. You preached peace to these people when God is determined to put a yoke on them. You went and said the absolute opposite of what God said. They believed you because your message appealed to them because it was the feel-good message. And by doing that, you counseled rebellion against God himself. That is fascinating to me. On a theological level, it is saying, if you tell people something other than what God has said, if you make stuff up, if you are declaring things that God never declared, people are going to believe that, buy into it, feel good about it, live their lives according to it, and then they are rebelling against God. And who does God hold responsible for it? The person who said it. That really ought to be a firm warning against people who ever stand in pulpits or talk about God. You really need to pay attention to what Jeremiah is saying here. Don't say what God did not say. And certainly don't make up a feel-good message that is going to tickle the itching ears of people who want to hear all about themselves or they want to hear good news or how much God loves them or that they're just a handful of aces in God's opinion. You need to tell them what God said. They're depraved. They are sinners. They need a redeemer. They need a savior. They are desperate without God being gracious to them. That is the message that the Bible declares. And if you're declaring anything else, you're making stuff up. And then when people believe that, you have caused them to rebel against God. Amen. And it makes God angry as a consequence I'm going to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you are going to die because you have counseled rebellion against Yahweh. So Hananiah the prophet died in that same year in the seventh month. So according to the first verse of chapter 28, we were already in the fifth month. That's what we read. So within the next seven months, which would be what remains in the year, Hananiah had to die sometime in there. So I think that's why Jeremiah took all the extra time to give us these date stamps as he's going along and telling us even the month that he had this encounter with Hananiah because yet again it demonstrates that God does fulfill his word. He's an absolute sovereign. He can do whatever he wants with what's his. And this time it's a very short-term prophecy. You're going to die before the year is out. And God fulfilled his word in the seventh month, less than two months after Jeremiah's prediction. And that's when Hananiah died. And why did God kill Hananiah? For saying what God didn't say. And that is a pretty sober warning. I got it all in in one night, even with microphone problems. Are there questions about that? Comments? Yes, sir. It does seem that. Uh, I was talking to the other, sir. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It does seem that there's a 
consistent uh, profile of false prophets where they will prophesy things that, well, like, for example, in uh, 1 Kings 22 with the, the false prophets that prophesy about going up to Ramoth Gilead. You'll take the city. It's going to go well for you. And, you know, of course, the one prophet prophesies rightly. You know, Micaiah. It's not Micaiah, yeah. yeah. And, but it's, the theme is that the false prophets want to tell the people or the leaders something good. They, they're more concerned about appeasing and appealing to the people yeah. than they are about bringing a true message. And whether it's someone like, you know, the Pharisees in the New Testament where they're more concerned about the praise of men than honoring God. It's just, it's this setting men's, um, the honor of men higher than that of God. And we see it to this day, don't we? Mm -hmm. I mean, we could name names. We can point at people who do that exact thing. Jeremiah points out, but all the prophets before me, we all prophesied disaster because that's why God sends the prophets to warn the people, to bring them back to God. He doesn't send prophets to say, hey, you're doing great. Yeah. So, yes, the other, sir. Pretty much the same thing. You hear these guys <laughs> that they say, oh, we got a word from the Lord today. This is going to happen. Yeah. Some good thing. And this is the day of your abundance. And this is the day when everything's going to go. This is your year of jubilee. This is your year. It's all going to happen for you. You're going to reach higher levels. You're going to, what's, what's the other phrase? They'll, uh, you're going to have your breakthrough. What does that even mean? But it just sounds so positive, so uplifting. Listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.